Welcome to Historically Thinking, a program devoted to all kinds of historical knowledge and to the ways that we achieve it. I'm your host, Al Zambone. Our website is historicallythinking.org, where you can subscribe, find more information about our guests, links, and related readings. Our email address is mail at historicallythinking.org. We'd love to hear from you. Hello. While the 1930s were not a great era for the American economy, they were wonderful for experiments in higher education. In 1933, the New School for Social Research began its graduate faculty of political and social science, its university in exile for Italian and German intellectuals seeking asylum from Nazism and fascism. Robert Hutchins transformed the undergraduate curriculum of the University of Chicago, and it in turn was adopted by a small college in Annapolis on the verge of closing. St. John's College is now famous for its great books curriculum. And down in the Blue Ridge of North Carolina, Black Mountain College taught art as the central pillar of a radical and interdisciplinary approach to the liberal arts. And way up on the other end of the Blue Ridge in Vermont, Bennington College was founded as a women's college emphasizing self-directed learning and hands-on experience. Though some of these experiments failed, all of them changed the culture of higher education to one extent or another. Strange that in this decade, or really for the last several decades, there have been so few experiments in higher education. My guest today aims to correct that. David J. Staley is Associate Professor of History and Director of the Humanities Institute at The Ohio State University in Columbus. His latest book is Alternative Universities, Speculative Design for Innovation in Higher Education, and it is filled with suggestions of how we might re-envision college, and it is the focus of today's conversation. David, welcome to Historically Thinking. Thank you very much, Al. So, um, not that long ago, you wrote a book called History in the Future, using historical thinking to imagine the future. Um, and I really feel like we should schedule another conversation to talk about that book. Um, we've had one one conversation about historians in the future, which, as you as you note, uh, something that historians traditionally have resolutely avoided thinking about. Um, mm -hmm. But this book seemed to me a, a sort of follow up on that book that you're using methods. This is a the book we'll get to is is kind of there's <laughs> you really avoid. Um, uh, much throat clearing at the beginning. Uh, you don't have a whole chapters and chapters on method. You just go into just creating these, cr what will seem to many listeners and not a few readers, crazy ideas for different types of colleges. But the method, it seems to me, maybe have came from your way of thinking about the future. Is, is that right? Am I on to something there? Yes. So Yes, I think so. In some ways, the book, uh, uh, this book, Alternative Universities, yeah. is uh, uh, a slight departure from my work in the future, mm -hmm. but slight only in the sense that um, what, I, what I'm doing in this book is uh, doing preferred futures or, or um, um, the kind of future I'd like to see happen. Most <laughs> of the work I do in, in futuring is about anticipating the world as, as I think is probably likely to happen good, bad, or, or, or ugly, whatever that might look like. So what, um, so what do you mean I, by preferred features and imagining preferred futures? So that's the, that's already your, so if, uh, right. I allow myself the opportunity to ask what if, mm -hmm. and, uh, if I had the opportunity to, to start a university today, well, what would I do? What would, what would that look like? Uh, if I didn't have constraints to worry about, or if I didn't, uh, 
uh, if I didn't think about uh, the way the trends are actually going. Mm -hmm. And so it was allowing myself permission to do that. Usually I have, uh, uh, when I'm doing futures work, I'm, I have constraints under which I, I have to operate uh, or um, uh, assumptions that undergird uh, any, any, sort of, uh, any sort of scenario. This allowed myself uh, the opportunity to, uh, to dream a little bit. Mm -hmm. um, well, what, um, one thing you don't spend a lot of time talking about are MOOCs. And uh, you, do, mm -hmm. you do begin in sort of 2012 with the moment, sort of the, mm -hmm. the MOOC moment. Um, and mm -hmm. uh, just the other day, I think I put it in a newsletter, uh, newsletter Notanda, Udacity just uh, laid off 20% of its workforce. Um, mm -hmm. There are a lot of probably humanities professors who are chortling at that. Um, I'm not <laughs> sure that's valid. Um, I'm not sure that MOOCs are gone forever. I think they'll definitely come back in one way or the other. Um, maybe the technology is just not good enough. But why do you quickly sort of pass on beyond MOOCs? Um, because I think the, the, the business model of MOOCs was always problematic. Oh. Um, and uh, and I, I, I sort of wrote as much and and I, I, I gave some talks about this mm. uh, in in the midst of MOOC mania and if you take MOOCs for for well what they were massive open online courses mm. um, I said there's a, there, there's a lot of problems with them especially the open part of it remember the the original intention of MOOCs was that these would be sort of freely available yeah uh, to anybody who would want them and the first MOOCs were, were sort of designed this way and I I said at the time you know that that, that that's a wonderful thought and as someone who teaches at a land-grant university I see I see the inherent good in providing courses you know freely available to anyone but then the pragmatist in me said how how are we actually going to pay for this mm -hmm. uh, and and I compared MOOCs, or at least the way in which MOOCs were were, were being conceptualized, you know, in 2012 and earlier. Um, it was very much like what the newspapers were doing in the in the early 2000s. I mean, they were they were they were giving away content, yeah. Uh, and then they quickly discovered that business model just simply can't work. <laughs> and so, you know, yeah. maybe there are a few institutions that have the, the 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 wealth and the resources to be able to give away courses for free. But I think as a as a model that was going to dominate higher education, uh, it it just didn't seem likely. Now, I think we've backed away from MOOCs. There is still online presence. Mm -hmm. uh, and in fact, the online revolution seems to be gaining a certain amount of momentum. Um, I'm thinking about what Purdue has, has just done in buying Kaplan University. The, the two biggest universities in the country right now are largely online, Western Governors and uh, Southern New Hampshire mm -hmm. universities. Um, their presence is largely online. Now, are they using MOOCs, again, in the original uh, connotation of, of, that, uh, of that term? No. Are they largely online and growing? Yeah, I think the answer is yes. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's a good distinction. Um, whatever um, Purdue is becoming by buying capital, it's not a MOOC. Um, and, and it's also correct. It's, yes. Yeah, it's also buying a gr or renting in a way. Purdue now has 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 a storefront space throughout the country or throughout the world, I guess, yes. um, which is not and in fact, a MOOC. the direction that we're yeah, I'm sorry. The direction that we're heading uh, with uh, with sort of online education, I think, also uh, is going to run into challenges. Mm -hmm. uh, specifically, well, they they don't appear to cost much less than face-to-face -face classes, at least yeah. the way in which they're being priced right now. 
Uh, and the other thing is that, uh, that, that, that online education seems to mirror uh, our big lecture classes. Mm-hmm. I mean, and that seems to be sort of the, the architecture underlying it. And there was, you know, there's been a, 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 a largely a rejection of that, of, of that kind of approach to, to higher education. So well, I think that, I mean, there's going to be a time some, of reckoning, I think. As someone who's still involved in those wars, um, and listeners can listen to ep- <laughs> episode 100, I'm not sure um, we've, I'm not sure things are quite that good in terms of rejecting lecture. Um, I also think yeah. that some places are just, uh, they have nothing else they can do. Um, if right. they're not Ohio State, they don't have TAs. They don't have, um, they, they don't have the necessarily the money for as many adjuncts even as a place like Ohio State University of Virginia have. Um, they're kind of stuck with a lecture hall of 300 people. And then the question is, why not just do this as a online course? And, and I frankly, as an online course, as yeah, a MOOC. Yes. And, as I frankly, well, maybe a mock, but I'm not sure why not, why, should they, why they shouldn't. <laughs> Maybe not open, but certainly massive online course. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, what do we, What do you think? Just before, just you're the per- perfect person to ask this. I've been curious about this. Um, I don't know if this phase is over, but there are obviously there are university administrators who uh, were very interested in putting colleges in Dubai and Qatar and Kuwait and things like that. And then it got so that they wanted to have separate campuses in different parts of, say, the United States. So. Drexel, for whatever reason, put a, a campus, uh, Philadelphia, what was a Philadelphia engineer school, decided it needed a campus in Sacramento, California. Um, what's the what's going on there? Uh, is that another one of these sorts of um, phases that sort of sweeps through higher education as it looks for, you know, well, um, as it looks for the future or the cynic might say looks for something to do? So I think that what, uh, especially the example you give of, of Drexel sort of expanding their um, expanding their campuses uh, within the country, in some ways they were trying to mimic uh, what the for-profit sector was doing. Mm-hmm. And so m- uh, most of the players in the in the for-profit uh, sector have multiple campuses across multiple cities, uh, and as such, then the um, the uh, what's being sold is the is the brand, such as it was. Among the uh, among the for profits, and of course I'm speaking in the past tense because the for profits, of course, have been reeling over the last over the last five years or so. Yeah. And so I think that what some institutions were attempting to do is to mimic that approach, really franchising, you know, franchising their brand. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and and you know, we I could go through a list of these. Indiana Wesleyan University, for instance, has a right. campus, a campus, a, a building here in Columbus, Ohio, just to take one example of that. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, but it's uh, it, it's a reaction to the, um, the 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 nature of the higher education marketplace today, um, because higher education is becoming so commoditized. This is one reaction uh, that that was I think almost predictable mm-hmm. that, that the college would start thinking of themselves as franchises to to be expanded across the country. Now, India Wesleyan has had some success, I believe, financially in doing that. Indeed. Uh, yes, um, indeed. Because I, I, I know people who were former student who was in the professor of in the honors college there, and they were rolling in wealth compared to, to other people uh, for their honor, to, for mm-hmm. a very traditional books and mortar, um, bricks and mortar, books and mortar too, um, sort of uh, <laughs> institution. 
and, and attracting really good students with scholarships because they had done that. I, I don't know how long they can keep on doing that. And I guess they can do it, you know, so long as the market will bear it and they, and they watch it carefully. But I don't know how many other people have successfully done it. Yeah, I, I, I think the except the exceptions are the rule. I think. Mm-hmm. What um, would you agree? As I, as I was reading your book and putting it down and thinking, like for an hour or so at a time, um, I was trying to think of what's like a successful major university that's been founded in the last thirty years. Um, I asked that because I was thinking, huh. Usually, at any time in American history, say from, well, 1700, 1750, 1850, 1900, I could look around and I could see a sort of a bustling university and say, oh, yeah, that's only 30 years old. Um, In 1900, I could look around, I could see Stanford, I could see Johns Hopkins, I could see Cornell, that'd be right? Yeah, it would be. Um, Places that were already had a really uh, head of steam on. And yet they were really recent creations. Um, I look around, I, I can't think of anyone now who's a relatively recent creation. I get, you know, maybe Kaplan. Maybe I should expand um, my... Yeah, I was going to say, yeah, maybe we look in the for-profit uh, yeah. space for that, although that's that's certainly problematic. I mean, you could say... You could say University of Phoenix, but mm-hmm. uh, I, and this this goes back, I guess, to your definition of what success means or what right. success will mean. Mm-hmm. If that means in terms of you know, number of students, um, does it have to do with uh, the, the, the research profile? Does it have to do with reputation? Mm-hmm. And I tend to alight on reputation, I, I think, as, as, as maybe the most important definition of success, if only because in higher education, uh, we really are in the reputation business, mm-hmm. whether we like it or not. We're in the reputation business. <laughs> yeah, and uh, there's not, there's none. So by 1900, Johns Hopkins was a really new school, um, and yet yes. it, it had created uh, its reputation was stratospheric because it was creating the first generation of PhDs in the United States, and they were going everywhere. Um, they were the fifth column that uh, was going into American colleges. And it was, uh, it was. It, Right, and it was unique. I mean, it was the you know the first research university right. uh, in the United States, yeah. uh, and that, that that is, you know, I hate to use the language of economics, but that was its competitive advantage, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Part of the challenge that uh, that 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 we face today, in, in in terms of the question you just raised, a university, a successful university that's been created in the last thirty years, is that um, um, there is a there is a disincentive. Uh, for reasons that maybe we can talk about further, but there's a disincentive to create something that's sort of unique and new in the way that Johns Hopkins was, mm-hmm. in the way that the, the land-grant universities were. Right. Uh, there's a real disincentive, I think, to do that. Yes. So and, I, you know, I, even as I'm looking at, like, the for-profits, a lot of them, you know, they're, they're, I don't find them that innovative, frankly, the no. for-profits. The no, profits, they're, they're you know, very... I, I just don't find them innovative. They're strikingly uninnovative, actually, given the yes. opportunity that they had they ended up recapitulating uh, certain features of the nonprofit uh, schools, of the uh, yes. pri- pirate and public schools, that really you would have thought they would have rejected um, as they were re-envisioning what they could have been. Yes, no, I, I absolutely agree. Um, so, yeah, what um, I guess also the reputation, it means that um, using Hopkins or what would be the representative, I guess, University of Wisconsin, um, 
as, as, mm -hmm. a, as another, th the land grant institution that every University of Wyoming, every other land grant school had to match them. Um, Harvard had to change to adapt and be like Johns Hopkins. That must be the last time that ever happened. Um, but Harvard's actually very, <laughs> no, but Harvard's actually the reason why it's been around so long is it's very good at changing its shape. Um, it's been yes. three or four, five different colleges by my count over its history, different types of schools. Um, and usually it's been responding to someone else who's changing the, 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 the argument. Um, you know, it changes, mm -hmm. Princeton changes from a seminary and really Harvard is changes from being mostly a sem seminary directed, let's put it that way, towards being a more of a liberal arts college. Um, and Hopkins comes up with a research university. Harvard eventually grudgingly becomes a research university. Um, but it's hard to think of any school that's done that, that's made Harvard or anyone else react to it. I think that's what we mean by reputation. Um, what are the disincentives? Let's get to that. What are the disincentives for change? Uh, so there, there are many. And so you mentioned Harvard, for instance. Yeah. There's, uh, there's the, the Harvard Envy um, yes. uh, concern, I suppose, <laughs> uh, that, uh, that we have, yeah, that we have to, we, we have to look like Harvard. There's a, um, there's Carnegie climbing that I think it's part of it. Yeah. That if we're going to change, if we're going to go through that transformation, it means uh, that we're we're going to uh, look like um, uh, we're going to benchmark an institution that already exists. Mm -hmm. So I'm I'm thinking of like the University of Central Florida. Uh, they've they've undergone tremendous change in the last 30 years. Tremendous change, but uh, not. Not in sort of innovating uh, uh, or experimenting in higher education. I mean, really is you know, looking like a you know they're attempting to look like a like a research one mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. uh, university, and, and, they're, we, and they're well on their way to doing that. And we could we could put many many schools on that list, couldn't we? I mean, it's interesting to yes. me. Um, you know, Ohio State might be different in the in its effect on the system, just because you're so darn big. But when UVA yeah. and UNC Chapel Hill decided to cap their student undergraduate uh, populations, basically, um, that was very healthy for the rest of the Virginia and North Carolina um, public school systems. Um, so you've got UNC Charlotte becoming really doing what Central Florida has done, um, becoming bigger and, and then better. And then in Virginia, you see places like Christopher Newport and James Madison who were you know, were safety schools uh, uh, at best uh, in the 80s, to be, to be blunt, or v even v VCU, Virginia Commonwealth, now becoming really very good schools on the Carnegie basis, mm -hmm. on the Carnegie ranking. Mm -hmm. Yes. The other, uh, the other disincentive, I suppose, has to do with accreditation mm -hmm. and uh, the kind of expectations uh, that, uh, that regional accreditors expect and want um, and uh, I, I guess another disincentive is, uh, I guess, is the expectation of the marketplace. Mm -hmm. um, part of the reason why I found that the, the for-profits were not very innovative is that most of them developed curricula around the, the perceived most popular majors, you know, business, healthcare, yeah. uh, veterinary technology, whatever the case might be. Um, and, and so a little too reactive to the perceived market uh, for, for higher education. Uh, it's uh, it's it's risky to take a risk. It's risky to to experiment. Mm -hmm. uh, and and 
some of the examples that you listed in the in the introduction uh, to this piece. I mean, those those were experiments, and they were incredibly risky. Yeah. Black Mountain was St. John's. These were these these were uh, capital intensive risks. Yeah, and and, uh, and so I suppose that's another big disincentive. And half of them failed. The ones just the ones I mentioned. <laughs> that's right. Um, you know, uh, Bennington isn't what it was, and Black and Black Mountain eventually failed. Um, so, mm-hmm. and Chicago has kind of puttered on along with Hutchins' vision. It's sort of up to the moment. Um, St. John's continues to be St. John's. But yeah, it's 50%, you know, that's that's probably better than a lot of other entrepreneurial ventures. But uh, I could have listed a number of other ones that you mentioned in your book or that I, you can quickly Google and figure out what they were. And I'm sure that the um, entrepreneurial win-loss ratio is pretty much the same as it is for any other enterprise in terms of those experimental colleges of the 20s and the 30s. Mm-hmm. And they seem to come uh, at, uh, at at sort of punctuated moments. There, there, there's a there's a flurry of experimentation that it sort of levels off, and another sort of flurry of experimentation. So yeah. the 20s, obviously, was, yeah. was a period. The 60s was a period. Yeah, the 60s, though, it seems to me that in many ways the 60s was the massive change of teachers' colleges into state schools. I, I, I was trying to mm-hmm. why is the 60s different from other periods of American innovation in higher ed. And it seems to me that's where the that's where the energy was. It uh, were really new was. It seems to be the beginning of a period of what you call the what Carnegie what was it what was it again? But anyways, we're trying to move Carnegie up. Carnegie climbing. Yeah, yeah, Carnegie climbing. It's the beginning of the era of Carnegie climbing is in the in the sixties. Mm-hmm. Um, it seems to me different than the and, sort of great flourishing of the um, land grants and the I don't know what for lack of about the robber baron co- universities. Of the of the seventies and eighties and nineties um, uh, of the nineteenth century. Yeah, a different set of historical circumstances in each case. There's not a there's not a no a, a consistent cause, as it were. I think another cause in the sixties were just the, uh, the 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 student movements, just the various various movements of the sixties that were sort of pushing back against. Uh, the traditional university, mm-hmm. um, and so there's a there's there's a flurry of experimental colleges or or, or or experiments within existing universities that we see, and 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 as you suggest, uh, not all of them not all of them succeed, right? No, the school no. in Florida, I'm thinking. Yeah, that's right. And then I guess ben, that one not Bangton, but still um, succeeded. Yeah, and there's a, and a variety would it be Goddard, a very variety in Vermont, and Hampshire mm-hmm. College, and so on. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it's interesting. Um, Given that the initial protests at Berkeley were, in a way, really against the chancellor, um, yes, <laughs> it's uh, strange how little the structure, the actual structure of the university, changed. Um, it's, well, it's, I think I still find that perplexing. And and uh, anyway, uh, let's talk about something happier, like possible um, possible futures. Um, <laughs> Let's talk about some of the examples in the book. Um, first of all, let's go to my mind, one of the, the first, and in some ways the craziest, which is Platform <laughs> University. So you, this is the first of these proposals you're making for really radically re-envisioning how college can be done. And you say that Platform University will derive its energy and direction from self-organization and the emergent properties thereof. Mm-hmm. What does that mean? So a crazy idea, yeah. So there's um, um, so w- when I first came up with this idea, uh, this is as uh, Wikipedia was yeah. was growing in size and influence. That's where I first sort of got the idea. And and, and Wikipedia is 
uh, a, a recent example of a platform. And a platform is, def- uh, is defined as, as an organization or a space that facilitates exchange. Uh, the, the platform itself is agnostic about what that exchange is or what its business is. It simply provides the space, the opportunity for exchange to occur. And in a sense, that's what Wikipedia was. Wikipedia was the, the, the infrastructure for people who are interested in writing articles, writing encyclopedia, or editing them, mm-hmm. uh, to, to have the opportunity to do that. But I, uh, the idea of a platform, I think, is, is quite old. Uh, the Athenian Agora, the 5th century BC, was a kind of platform. In other words, the Agora wasn't, it, it wasn't uh, uh, designed to, for, for a particular sort of, of activity. Lots of activities occurred there, everything from you know, uh, political rhetoric to, uh, to trade, to commerce, to crime. Um, that, that in a sense, it was, the, it was the, the, the people who used the space that defined what the space was going to be used for. Mm-hmm. That's probably the, uh, uh, the, the, the easiest way to explain it. So there this, are all sorts of examples like that throughout history. So even a farmer's market, a Saturday farmer's market, is too organized for what you're descri- describing. Yeah, maybe, maybe so. Maybe a little too organized. Yeah. Uh, yeah, because it's you know, uh, people getting it for that reason. Uh, but, you know, uh, it, 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 it certainly gestures in that direction. Uh, I suppose technically a, a shopping mall is a kind of platform. In other words, the mall is, uh, provides a, a space for, uh, for uh, retailers and customers uh, to interact with each other. Yeah. And there's, there's now a whole uh, literature emerging about what's called platform capitalism, mm-hmm. uh, and it's giving all sorts of examples, contemporary examples. So Uber is a kind of platform. Airbnb. Is what it, it, uh, Amazon. Airbnb, yes. Yeah. Uh, and, so, uh, and so I imagined, uh, especially in regards to Wikipedia, I said, well, what if we use the same sort of logic of Wikipedia to think about how to run a university? In other mm-hmm. words, the university exists to connect faculty, teachers, and students. And, and that's what it does. And, and it's sort of agnostic about what those, uh, what, the, what those teachers are teaching, what those students are interested in. It simply provides the space for them to, uh, to meet and to interact. Mm-hmm. Uh, and as a result, Platform University would be sort of protean and ever-changing, again, depending upon what teachers have to teach and what students are interested in learning. Mm-hmm. Um, it was uh, the, uh, uh, Paul Goodman in the 60s. He didn't use the word platform, but he imagined a, uh, a university like that. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, again, he didn't have the language of, of, of the platform, but he imagined that he said that you know, the purpose of a university is to connect teachers who want to teach and students who want to learn, and, mm-hmm. that, and that that should be the basis of a university. And his particular take was that uh, such a university would be uh, not very administrative happy. Right. Or administrative heavy, maybe I should sort of say, and and, and I uh, include that notion. Yeah, <laughs> right. Hmm. And I include that notion in the in the chapter in, in the book on platform university. That, that 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 this is as much about how the university is organized and managed, and that's yeah. why I use the term uh, self-organizing. It's yes. a different way of thinking about organization. And there are examples of of organizations that are more self-organizing, like that Burning Man. Think of, think of that. Uh, so imagine if a university were organized or operated like something like Burning Man. Mm-hmm. And uh, so you describe that as a crazy idea. And maybe it is. Yeah. It, 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 what I like uh, about but, it, uh, though, is it, what, what's crazy about it is it makes us realize, uh, uh, many people have pointed this out probably for the last 30, 50 years, 
that as our economy is changing into something that's much more like platform economy, the university it remains the most 19th century uh, industrial form that we have left. Uh, it is Ohio State University uh, is incredibly centralized in many ways. Mm -hmm. um, and mm -hmm. so is Augustana, so is a very small liberal arts college. Um, <laughs> it's, uh, it, they, ha they share that characteristic. Um, uh, a shopping mall that we, if we, is like anarchy compared to the way uh, a college is run. <laughs> you know, I mean, my goodness, we, we mean, you mean they're just like the person just pays rent and you like change the light bulbs? What, what? what you know that's yeah imagine if a shop I, that would be a kind of good satire if a shopping mall is run according to the principles of higher education management um i i wow but the to, to imagine a platform university therefore is to really question the entire way that we run uh, higher educational institutions well and that's uh and and i'm i'm pleased you phrase it that way because that's something that's underlying each one of the um each one of the what if mm -hmm. speculative designs that I'm doing in the chapter. Yeah, I picked up whether on that. or not uh, <laughs> whether or not it's actually executable. Yeah, uh, it's my hope that these universities at least uh, get us to question our current assumptions, yeah. the way we do things, in a way it, you just described. It would. It would. I mean, I started thinking what would happen. I'm, um, in fact, my my wife is uh, from Bryce, which you know on the west side of town. Um, where they have a, a variety now of decaying strip malls. Um, everyone's moved out. That's right. Of now. And I imagined um, a spinoff from Ohio State or something like that, occupying one of those strip malls and setting up mm -hmm. a platform university. Um, don't even need, mm -hmm. we don't even need walls. We knock them all down and the walls move according to the size of the class. But basically the job of the, of the institution is to make sure that everyone is a minimal to make sure that none of the professors are shysters or you know or, right or weirdos i mean okay i mean criminally weird um not just yeah um and to keep, keep the lights on <laughs> pedagogically keep, yeah and keep and keep the electricity running um and that's basically so, it. um a, a, a current example of that would be like a co-working space yeah exactly I mean, every way you just described it right there a co-working space yeah, co-working exactly. space doesn't say we're only going to accept certain kinds of businesses for instance or right. certain kinds of activities uh, but you know there is there is a certain amount of screening but the idea is you know we provide wi-fi we provide mm -hmm. you know uh, uh, you know seats and those sorts of things uh, uh, uh quiet spaces maybe they provide coffee Right. Um, well, so it'd be I, like a university would be run like a co-working. I space. think that would be part of its business plan is actually making money on coffee mm -hmm. um, and rent. <laughs> yes. Um, that's basically how they're. That's that. That's how the. That's how. That's how they're getting a return. And I could imagine various ways. I mean, it could be that it could be initial core of teachers who are acting as the society, um, you know, of partners, not or LLC, which is is running that and inviting others to join them, something like that. Um, I think it's one of the interesting things, uh, one of the problems of modern higher education is professors don't have enough skin in the game, um, both both for uh, for benefit and also for liability. Um, I think it concentrates the mind wonderfully when you're somehow implicated in, in the in personally implicated, financially implicated in the decisions that your college is making. Um, so that's a possibility that could happen with a platform university. So, and I wanted to, uh, before we go on to other examples, uh, we, we, uh, uh, you talk about crazy ideas. Mm -hmm. and, and I realize as writing these that some of these do come across as crazy. But then again, if I'm thinking historically, uh, think about the rationale, the argument that was being made for the land grants uh, in the middle of the 19th century. 
you know, the idea that uh, that a university would teach agriculture or what we would say call engineering really came across really well, that was a crazy idea. Mm-hmm. You know, a university was about the classical curriculum, uh, you know, Greek and Latin. Uh, but agriculture in a university that uh, that that really was a, 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 a let's call it an innovative idea. And, and, and so as I as I'm thinking about yeah. these and I'm thinking about the reception uh, to these ideas, what makes them crazy? I, I guess I, I ask myself at, at, at yeah. many junctures. Yeah, it and go back six years before that. Part of, I know best when you've got all the all of a sudden a bunch of Presbyterian ministers graduating from John Witherspoon's College in New Jersey, and convincing Presbyterian churches around the Mid Atlantic colonies or Mid Atlantic states in the South to create what will become colleges like Hampton Sydney, Latin and Greek. Why mm-hmm. do my kids need to learn Latin and Greek? They're going to be farmers. Um, you know, why do we yes. need that? Uh, aren't you going to create ministers? Well, maybe we will create ministers, but you know, it's important that your kids come here to learn Latin and Greek so they can become good citizens. You know, this this overwhelming em- emphasis on Republican virtue and Republican ethics leads to this explosion of American colleges uh, like none other, um, maybe in human history. I think that's probably fair to say. Um, so that I wouldn't disagree. I think that's I don't I don't can't think of any other comparable um, you know examples, and that's crazy too. Um, it's just insane, <laughs> given that up until, what, 1775, there were four or five colleges uh, in the United States, and that was it. And so, uh, a, a few more, but, but, but not many more. Not nine, many. I think. Maybe nine. Yeah. yeah. So it's um, that explosion that occurs in the 1780s and 90s is equally crazy. Um, and, mm-hmm. that, and that it continues to march along out to the Mississippi and beyond is also kind of crazy. So. Mm-hmm. Um, there's no good, it's hard for me to come up with a good economic argument for it. Um, they certainly weren't agricultural colleges at first. Um, is there anything, right. is there anything else we should say about platform university? Uh, uh we covered a fair amount of it. Okay. Micro college. One of my, I think my favorites, this is your, uh, you are basing this on the micro school, um, which is now the turn to the one room school. Um, there's actually some charter yeah. systems that are doing this in, in very cool ways in, say, New Orleans and poor neighborhoods. Um, they're able to come up with very small schools um, that suit the needs of a very small population in the immediate area of the school. And um, hopefully we'll see more of that because it's very adaptable. You suggest that could be a neat kind of college. Yes. And a reaction to mega schools and uh, to draw the parallel with mega universities. In fact, mm-hmm. I start this this uh, this section of the book by pointing out the the you know the the growing size of Arizona State, the size of Ohio State, the, yeah, uh, the ever growing size. Of You're going to talk about Arizona Florida. State, pal. I mean, where where are you exactly? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> yes. Uh, so, uh, but as you as you point out, uh, the, the the model here is is uh, the micro school movement. Uh, but I'm imagining even smaller than uh, than uh, than micro schools, which they're talking about again, K through 12 schools on the order of 150 students. Mm-hmm. Uh, the micro college, as I imagine in the book, would be an institution of one faculty and 20 students, mm-hmm. uh, which again sounds like a, a really sort of bizarre idea until you realize there actually is a uh, a college existing in the United States. It's similar to that. So Deep Springs College in the Sierra Nevadas uh, it has capped at 27 students. Now they have three faculty and actually a revolving number of, uh, of guest faculty. But the scale of the enterprise is uh, 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 the same as what I'm, what I'm mm-hmm. imagining here. 
And micro colleges, I'm imagining it would be uh, not just simply one faculty member. It would be uh, actually augmented by by technology. Not so well. I guess online classes, but I'm thinking more like uh, personalized personalized learning. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, there would also be a system of uh, Oxford-style tutorials that would be part of the uh, the educational experience, uh, and uh, peer peer teaching uh, between uh, uh, b- between the twenty students. Uh, but and obviously there wouldn't be just one micro college. The idea there there would be there would be hundreds thousands yeah. uh, of micro colleges. But the idea is to think about the scale of the educational enterprise. And again, the, the part of the point of this chapter is, is to think about the, the, uh, the our current our current state, uh, especially in these uh, especially very very large universities. What would it mean to think about education as much more personalized than this? Mm-hmm. Another historical example. I, I don't think I can't recall if I point to it specifically in the book, but uh, Abraham Flexner, who was the first uh, director of the Institute for Advanced Study. Um, when he was living in, in Louisville, he was essentially a tutor. Uh, he tutored young men, uh, and his promise was is that you know you study with me, and uh, I will get you into uh, elite colleges in the East. And his school, and I'm putting that in quotation marks, had 11 students at any given time. He worked with 11 students, and he was, and, and he was very successful at it because he did. You know, his, 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 the students he tutored uh, would end up at uh, at uh, the top schools in the East. Mm-hmm. And so again, I'm just thinking about the scale of of, of that sort of enterprise. Again, uh, one teacher, eleven students. Uh, Indian uh, education before the British Raj was was based around you know the guru, mm-hmm. one one guru and you know, twenty twenty five or so students. And so again, there are historical echoes for for higher education at that kind of scale or that sort of that that sort of micro scale. I would even to go farther back, well, maybe not as far back as the Indian guru, but Oxford began this way. Um, you've got yes. small, I mean, you can go into, there's an insurance company on High Street in Oxford, and you can go in, you can see a medieval hall. What is a medieval hall? It's a micro college. It is a um, one place with one guy who had gotten his degree from Oxford, who had contacts back with other fellows from, say, his region in um, Dorset or Cornwall or Northumberland. Um, maybe they were mates of his who've gone back to teach class and they send him clever young men and he teaches them there and that's the Oxford education, but he's re- registered as a master and he meets with the society of fellows in the undercroft at St. Mary's once a week or once a month. And, but those are micro colleges and they became, they're still, they grew up, they became much bigger by that standard, much smaller than our idea of what a college should be. 300 students only 400 students. But it began originally in precisely that system, uh, and I, I think it has a lot of future left. And it, uh, b- because of the, the, the technological tutors that would be, uh, that would be part of this, it, it, it's not that there's not um, a, a capital investment in a micro-college. By the same token, uh, there's not the, the capital investment in, in lots and lots and lots of large buildings. In fact, as I imagine micro-colleges, they could be set up within existing institutions. Yeah. However, you want to define it, museums, uh, scientific laboratories, whatever, uh, whatever sort of institution we look like. No, it's helpful to imagine. I, I, I think of, I, I perhaps it's maybe I'm an institution builder, and that's, that's maybe I'm thinking too 
more than you were, but I was thinking of, say, Philadelphia or Washington, D.C. or someplace, sort of a collection of affiliated micro-colleges, and there could be one at the Philadelphia Museum of Art. There could be one, you know, mm-hmm. renting space in the uh, Orchestra Hall down on Broad Street. There can be another, you know, mm-hmm. ne- at the Marion Theater next door. There can be another one, at the, uh, et cetera, et cetera. There could be a, basically a, a galaxy, a solar system, or even a galaxy of these micro-colleges, which might even, you might, mm-hmm. uh, students might go f- to a year to one, and then on for one subject, and then to the next depends mm-hmm. um and that's a valid way of going to school and it's in terms of mm-hmm. bricks and mortar it's cheap well and i like uh, the way you're thinking about uh, embedding it within different kinds of institutions yeah. uh because i think that would that, that would be a, a a key part of thinking about the micro college mm-hmm. yeah why why go study librarian science when you could have a micro college uh, embedded in the free library of philadelphia um, why right. do museum studies when you can have a micro college embedded at the Franklin Institute or or art history when you could be embedded in the Philadelphia Museum of Art? Well, we, and we could repeat this ad nauseum for any city with those sorts of institutions. It gives a lot of these institutions and, which are struggling for a, a future. It gives them a uh, is precisely it fits in with their mission. And. Um, and, and and those locations are, are terrific for that purpose. Uh, it, it needn't be in a city nope. uh, if one were interested in sort of sustainability as a as an approach. Having a micro college out in in, in a rural area, for instance, yeah, would, yeah. Would, would make perfect sense. No, and I mean, and those could be part of it too. I mean, you say mm-hmm. you could if you're interested in marine science. Well, down down at Cape May, you can go for you know mm-hmm. uh, ten kids could be uh, on a boat. Um, going out and taking samples or whatever they do. Um, the, the varieties are endless, really. Quite agree. What, um, <laughs> let's uh, skip ahead to, um, well, let's talk about the liberal arts college because uh, some people might find this, um, well, this is all very well and good, but how are people to get jobs? Um, and um, <laughs> others who find that to be an impertinent neoliberal um, corporatist nonsense and uh, a, a terrible question will have been listening very happily. Uh, but now they, both sides will feel differently when perhaps you talk about your idea for a liberal arts college. Uh, yes, and, uh, and, and uh, if, if, if any one of the colleges has received a lot of pushback, I think it's this one. Really? And, uh, um, Yes, well, because uh, my original uh, title, uh, and uh, so this book began as, a, as an article that I wrote in um, uh, uh, Educause Review, mm-hmm. but the original title was the Neoliberal Arts College. <laughs> yeah, that's, knew. Right. Uh, that's how I meant it. Yeah. But then lots of people read that as neoliberal. Uh-huh. Uh, and, and, and I could see maybe where they would come to that conclusion, because the argument I make here is uh, a, a return to you know, the idea of the liberal arts. Uh, but, uh, but liberal arts for the 21st century. And so the idea here is, uh, you know, I, I, I looked at uh, surveys and, and other sorts of studies that point to the kinds of skills that, um, that CEOs and, and, and companies say they want in graduates, especially the soft skills. And so I imagine, uh, what if we, what if we created a college that was around educating for those skills as opposed to subjects. Hmm. And so as I'm imagining the liberal arts college, at least in, in, in this book, uh, we're looking at a, uh, at a curriculum of seven intellective skills or intellectual skills, mm-hmm. complex problem solving, sense making, making, imagination, 
multimodal communication, cross-cultural competency, and leadership. And again, based on various studies, these are the kinds of skills that we keep hearing are valued in the workplace. And so the argument here around the liberal arts college is uh, let's turn those skills into the subjects of, uh, of an education. And the way that's done in the liberal arts colleges, I'm imagining it, is a series of uh, we would, I guess, call internships. Mm-hmm. So in other words, that you would learn complex problem solving by having an internship with an organization where you were working on that skill. Hmm. Uh, and the idea of the liberal arts college, and again, echoing, uh, echo, echoing uh, maybe a, 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 a pre-19th century pattern, is that every student would work on and develop and uh, develop mastery in the seven skills. So you're not majoring in any, anything specifically. You are going through the curriculum around these seven skills. And so, yes, it's, it'll be challenging and problematic for, for, for some people listening to it because, again, it's, it, it's much more vocationally focused, mm-hmm. uh, and it's not based around subjects. That was, that was the, the, the particular sort of uh, take that I was uh, – or the particular sort of argument I wanted to make in this chapter. Yeah, that's uh, really – you wanted to really uh, because, offend everybody. Because it's oftentimes said that – well, yes, yes, it'll <laughs> – uh, uh, challenge assumptions. How's that? Yeah, that's better. Yeah. Uh, but it's often said that that like complex problem solving. We sometimes say, well, you learn that studying history, or mm-hmm. you learn that studying you know the sciences. Uh, but the way I the way I argue it in this chapter is oftentimes that's a uh, a a byproduct of studying a subject, as opposed to the goal of the uh, the education in the first place. Yeah, we we and so that's we, the, we want to say that we're what t- if. Yeah, uh, and that's and that's fair. Um, that's, um, I, I probably bridled at this chapter more than most. Um, but I, <laughs> I, I reconsider my assumptions and, uh, you know, we, we like to say, yeah, we're teaching critical thinking and when we teach history, but how many of us, like when, as we prep for class say, now, how am I going to teach critical thinking? What's the critical thinking move? I'm going, we, we don't do that. I mean, I, I haven't created a, a syllabus towards critical thinking in history. So I should probably, you know, shut up about that. What I'm doing is I'm teaching history the way I want to, <laughs> to teach it or listen to it. I'm not doing that. So this is a, this is a necessary corrective um, to that way of thinking, and it's you know, it's a interesting. It's it's very helpful to reconsider one's assumptions by doing that. Um, interface University. I think platform university is the craziest idea. Um, perhaps because you know I've served on committees. But um, <laughs> but Interface University will strike people, I think, as a little bit too science fiction and that Staley has lost it. Um, so why don't you go ahead and describe it? Um, so that's, that, that, that reaction is entirely possible, although uh, – so this is a chapter I, I, I also that like deals to, with – I don't the, agree. I think, I, I think this is completely – this is re- very reasonable actually. So go ahead. So go ahead. Yes. Well, it, yeah, it's a chapter about the future of higher education in an age of artificial intelligence. Yeah. That's that, that's maybe the, the easiest way to summarize it. Mm-hmm. And I say uh, because uh, I, I'm giving uh, I've been giving a lot of invited talks to both academic, but especially to professional organizations who are really concerned about the future of artificial intelligence. Mm-hmm. And uh, and and the concern is is AI going to take away my job? 
or, or some sort of version of that? Or is AI going to take over? And, and it's, these questions are moving out of the realm of science fiction and now into sort of practical reality. Yeah, uh, as, as every day, we, we, we seem to read the news about uh, some algorithm has uh, does something better now than, than a human being. Grading and so radiologists papers. are going to... It, or something like that. Sorry? Grading student yes. papers was one like a couple years ago. I, I like to see exactly. it when it happens, but anyway. Yeah. So the, 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 the assumption I'm making in, in, in this scenario in Interface University is that um, uh, artificial general intelligence is still a far-off goal and that what we're more likely to see in the, in the near-term future is human beings and artificial intelligence working together. Or learning how to work together, to think together, and and the 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 thinking here is that um, we will we will be augmented by artificial intelligence, and and, and in fact the flip is flip side of that is true, that mm -hmm. artificial intelligence will be augmented by our intelligence to engage in a level of cognition that neither entity alone can engage by themselves. The example I give is from um, what's called hybrid chess. This yes. Was, this was um, this was about uh, this is almost 15 years or so ago now, but hybrid chess, uh, 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 just for the benefit of your listeners, is uh, humans and computers playing chess against other humans and computers. So rather than sort of you know Gary Kasparov versus Deep Blue, it's Gary Kasparov and Deep Blue playing against others. And the idea is that the, the, the two intelligences working together perform better, can do better than any, uh, uh, than any one uh, uh, entity alone can do. Right. So, in fact, what happened in 2005 is there was a, there was a tournament where a, a very average player and an off-the-shelf computer beat uh, all the rest of the competition. Mm -hmm. And it shows what's, what, what's possible there when human intelligence and artificial intelligence think together. Interface University is the university that educates humans and artificial intelligence together. Now, um, I heard uh, Tyler Cowen talk about this human chess machine interface. Um, and it's in his, mm -hmm. in his book now. I forget the title, but it interested me uh, greatly when he talked about it. And uh, I don't know if you had read that in, in preparation for this. If not, then you were thinking remarkably like him. Um, but mm -hmm. he uh, pointed out that it was Gary Kasparov and Deep Blue don't work together very well. Um, mm -hmm. Gary Kasparov knows too much. Um, right. <laughs> it, turns, it turns out that the Grandmaster plus the um, chess playing intelligence is not the best combination. Um, not a match. Not a match. Um, and Kasparov has to go to interface you. Uh, and it turns out mm -hmm. that it, actually it's, it is the mediocre player that becomes more powerful when linked together with the mm -hmm. artificial intelligence. And the answer for this um, is a strange word. It's called humility. Um, that there's a certain intellectual humility that the mediocre chess player is able to say, hmm, okay, well, maybe that's right. Um, but yes. at the same time is able to correct the intelligence, the artificial intelligence as necessary. The, um, uh, the argument that I make uh, follows the, uh, and, and I understand this is, this is not the way that we think about uh, the brain today, left and right brain. Mm. I know that, the, that that's, a, that's, a, that's a, a, a false way of thinking of it. But having said that, um, the uh, algorithms are, seem to be particularly good at what we would think of as, as traditionally left brain skills mm -hmm. and haven't yet mastered right brain abilities, such as wonder, creativity, 
um, curiosity. And so what I argue in, the, in this chapter is that those things remain sort of uniquely human, and that's what human beings then bring to the interface with artificial intelligence. Mm-hmm. I was listening to an NPR report the other day about how artificial intelligence is helping ophthalmologists to early uh, to diagnose early a certain kind of condition that's t- that's that's tied to uh, uh, diabetes and the loss of eyesight, mm-hmm. and that uh, it's just it's just simply difficult to, to 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 see the early warning signs. But artificial intelligence is is proving quite adept at it, and so again, it's it, it's humans and artificial intelligence working together to achieve something to achieve something here. Artificial intelligence on its own can't make a diagnosis. It can spot patterns, but it's not making a diagnosis. Right. That's for human beings to sort of see the meaning. And what I argue in the book is that that's what human beings continue to bring to this equation. We're the sense makers. Mm-hmm. Um, um, algorithms aren't yet uh, interpreters or sense makers or those who engage in hermeneutics. Um, that's what we do. That's what we still are able to do. Mm-hmm. One last potato chip. Um, Polymath University. I think this is my favorite, actually. It's because it's insane. It's the, Paris I- it's, of- it's the Paris Island of higher education. <laughs> it, it, I think it's probably my favorite too, and and I say this as someone who uh, has an appointment in the history department here, but also has uh, courtesy appointments in design and in educational studies. Well, there you go. You, and you, so, Polymath University is based. I'm sorry. It's it's your life. <laughs> well, uh, without calling myself a polymath. <laughs> yeah. Well, you, but uh, yeah. It's, it's based on the idea that uh, that any student at this university, um, as a condition of graduation. Uh, has to major in three disparate majors. So, in other words, uh, uh, so it's a triple major. Yeah. Uh, and and one of the one of the effects of this is that there's no general education, no no general education, right. which I, may, may anger some. Uh, but the idea is that you can't major in say history, philosophy, and English, or accounting, finance, and business administration. Uh, and I've got a I've got a, a, a formula or a a, a a menu. You got a little chart. But, uh, it's basically yeah, uh, it's the humanities and the professions and the sciences, yes. roughly speaking. Yeah. So one would have to major in history and sociology and finance. Yeah, I, I think that's a little. Too, I thought it was a little weak to put the social sciences and the sciences together. I'd like to see. I'd like to see like a history, physics, and accounting major. Mm-hmm. Um, that would be that would be something. I'm not sure. I, I I couldn't have done it, but it would be it would be cool. It would be cool to try. Well, and. It, it's 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 when you succeed at it. It's the sort of uh, it's a sort of mind that is uh, that's educated in such an environment. So there's research about uh, double majors, and especially those who uh, who who, who st- they, they, the the term that's used is stretch. Mm-hmm. So uh, so the double major in physics and dance, for example. And uh, what's particularly striking about these students is their, their sort of mental flexibility, their, their, the way in which they, they look at problems, uh, the way in which they're able to translate between different domains. And the idea of Polymath University is, is, is to break down the silos that we, that we talk about uh, infecting higher education. Uh, uh, and uh, I, think is, um, I think is achievable. Uh, again, I think it takes a certain kind of student mm-hmm. to be able to to do it, uh, to and to be able to succeed at it. Uh, but uh, the 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 sort of the 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 mental discipline that's created uh, by uh, instilling interdisciplinarity in any individual. When we talk about interdisciplinarity, we're really talking about uh, 
people from different disciplines working together, right. as opposed to an individual who is interdisciplinary. Mm-hmm. And so that's the thinking I have behind uh, Polymath University. And I agree with you. It's, it, it, if I had to choose a favorite, it's probably that one. That's interesting. And I also suspect, having thought about it, it's probably the, the one that in the current environment is the cl- easiest, easiest, quote unquote, one to do. Um, it doesn't, there's... Um, We've talked about disincentives already, and um, we could spend another hour talking about disincentives and how to overcome them. But it seems to me that one of the the chiefest uh, disincentive uh, since 2008 is a uh, certainly a parental and therefore um, an 18 year old unwillingness to experiment. Um, You can't get a degree Mm -hmm. in art history um, when it costs thirty five thousand dollars a year to get one. Uh, when it costs six thousand, when it, you know, adjusting for inflation, when it costs something more like six or ten thousand, well, maybe you could. Um, but now all of a sudden, it, things are getting things are things are getting real, um, and mm-hmm. and de- <laughs> debt increases. Um, so, but here you can say, well, you know, you're you've got the arguments to make from the, the this really interesting study of double majors, um, and you've got the fact that one of the degrees that you're getting is in a profession. Like you can always fall back on finance, architecture, yeah. education, business, engineering, or accounting. You know, or and it's also it's also uh, given the fact of this uh, different. There's a considerable overlap in education. I think it would wouldn't be as expensive to um, even without general education, which saves a lot of money for a college if done properly. Um, the amount of overlap that would occur by triple majors, um, I think, would make be, make it okay. And you could also stage up gradually. You don't have to have all of them at once. You can add gradually as you go along. I agree with you that it would be uh, one of the easiest, again, in quotes, yeah. to, uh, to create today. One challenge would be, and, and, and I address this in the book, is that uh, the faculty at Polymath University would also have to be sort of interdisciplinary. Yeah. And in some ways, that's a challenge because of the way in which we're trained, the, yes. the, the, uh, the, the, the PhDs that we receive, for instance. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, uh, it, it's, it, 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 would be, it would be a challenge, I think, to find interdisciplinary uh, faculty, and part of what I say by that is, and again, this is based on some of the research that we've that we've uh, received about double majors, is uh, a kind of contentiousness among their uh, faculty advisors. Well, I'm a French professor, and this is the way things are supposed to be done. Right. Uh, and yet, we're asking the student to sort of uh, mentally toggle between being French and uh, then being uh, a physicist, and then being an accountant, let's say. No, I, I, yeah. I, compare, yeah. Uh, I, yeah, I compare the disciplines in the sense to like languages, and it's, it would be like asking students to be trilingual mm-hmm. in, that, in that regard, both as translators, but also being very comfortable in, in each one of the languages. Mm-hmm. No, and it's, and, you know, I didn't double major. I, I didn't know kids who, uh, fellow classmates who were, um, hard science and arts major. My best friend was almost a biology art history double major. And, mm-hmm. and he has uh, that sort of very interesting intelligence uh, now as a doctor mm-hmm. um, uh, and radiologist who's able to go um, from the aesthetic to the, uh, the, the scientific very quickly. Um, and it's a mm-hmm. tremendous, it, it's, it's really a lot to ask for a 21 year old, especially as they're trying to sort out their graduation requirements in their junior year. To go back and forth and negotiate between uh, professors who not only are hostile each, to each other but just don't understand each other. Um, <laughs> um, they truly—that's what the source of their hostility is incomprehension, as it so as as, as, as it so often is. 
um, it, yeah, but it, it, it's a challenge. I think it's a, it's just, it's a very fruitful idea. I think it, it, it's a very interesting, it's a very attractive idea. Um, what's holding us back? In the last five minutes here, um, we need to wind this down. What's holding us back from doing stuff like this? We already talked about some of the disincentives. My feeling is credentialing um, is a problem, but I think accreditation is probably the most overlooked problem in reforming American yeah. higher education. Yes, um, there there is a certain kind of of um, template I think that one has to follow for accreditation purposes. And there are all sorts of reasons for that, and, I, and I'm not throwing the, the accreditors under the under the bus. Oh, I hope go ahead. That doesn't sound that way. Yeah, it does. Well, but but there is a, there is a certain uh, sort of uh, box checking that has to occur mm -hmm. for for accreditation, and uh, and I had a little bit of experience with this. Um, um, I was I was doing some consulting a few years ago with a um, with with a, with a for profit. I was helping them think through their general education programs, and I suggested uh, I, I I laid out what I thought was an innovative way of thinking about uh, general education, and we hit uh, we hit an immediate roadblock from the accreditors, hmm. who said no, you have to sort of do your general education like everybody else. And so uh, we, can, we can be sort of dismissive and say, well, higher education isn't, isn't uh, uh, creative or inventive uh, or, uh, or innovative enough. Uh, but uh, in some ways, uh, it has to do with the, 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 the structure, the nature of the, uh, of, the, of the industry, I suppose. That's right. Uh, to not get accreditation is a huge risk then to say, well, I'm not going to worry about accreditation then. That's a, obviously a huge risk, and well, I, the, the, there's a huge disincentive there. I've wondered, what is the disincentive for not being accredited? So it's twofold. So one, it has to do with uh, you know, uh, federal uh, federal student loans. I mean, okay. that, that, that's that's sort of out the door. But accreditation is also uh, part of a way in which reputation is built. Mm -hmm. And so to say an institution is unaccredited, I mean, it sounds you know sort of shady and mm -hmm. you know uh, uh, back alley in some ways. That's right. Uh, and so that, that there's a reputational risk there, I think. Do you, do you think, I mean, I'm never, it'd be interesting to, I mean, certainly it, it's like a good housekeeping seal of approval or lack thereof, I think, uh, perhaps for consumers. I'm, I'm certain also mm -hmm. that it works reputationally amongst faculty and administrators uh, if you're uncredited. Um, mm -hmm. I, I don't know what, to what extent, it, which is greater. I suspect um, no one knows what accreditation means um, as a consumer, but they know not being it is bad. Yes, right. <laughs> yeah, um, and yet it it does it has created I think using one of those economist phrases again it's created an immense barrier to entry. Yes, yes, and well, and the other an, another important disincentive just has to do with the um, the sort of the capital outlay, mm -hmm. because to start any one of these institutions, what it would require you know, upfront, you know, it would require a lot of money. And yeah. so um, there's, there's a, there's a part of me that thinks, you know, do we go the route of venture capital? Uh, then that, that sends us down a, a road toward, uh, you know, realizing each one of these uh, universities as like a for-profit. And I'm not, I'm, I'm not entirely comfortable with that thought. Mm. Uh, what's also possible, and in fact, I think that, that, that this is probably what would need to happen for any one of these uh, universities to be realized, is that they would have to begin a sort of a startup within an existing institution. 
Hmm. And so I'm thinking like um, uh, I'm thinking about uh, like a Georgetown, the Red House at, at Georgetown. That's their that's their idea incubator. And what is it, that? I've never, case, I've never heard of that. Uh, so it's the uh, it's the uh, sort of educational uh, incubator <laughs> inside uh, inside Georgetown, um, <laughs> and um, it's it, it's um, it's it, well it's um, we'll, we'll one put, of the few in the uh, in the country I think. Yeah, I would imagine I have, I have to put a link to it on the on the show notes, but I, that's that's a news on yes. me. Yes, I can I can sure. definitely send you that. But uh, so I'm thinking, and again to look at history. Um, um, Alexander Michael John, after he left, I think it was Brown University, went to the University of Wisconsin in the late 20s and started the Experimental College. That was what it was called, the Experimental College. What it amounted to was a great books college, but it was inside the University of Wisconsin. Uh, And uh, in a sense, the the university was the incubator for this this new form of the university. And I think that existing institutions could play that role, especially if you think of these institutions not having to be sort of enormous institutions. In other words, the incubator doesn't have to create the University of Central Florida. Mm-hmm. Uh, what if what if you know, it meant incubating a micro college, mm-hmm. for instance, 20 students, one faculty? The capital outlay there would be would be quite different, I think, than if you were trying to uh, create an online university of twenty thousand students, mm-hmm. as uh, as seems to be the model today. And so, uh, uh, I, I think that uh, that would be uh, a that would be an efficient way to uh, to to start any one of these uh, institutions. It would have to uh, almost of necessity occur within an existing institution. That wouldn't necessarily have to be an institution of higher education. Mm-hmm. It could be any nonprofit. It could be a, a for-profit corporation uh, that could that could incubate and start one of these institutions. My guest today has been David Staley. David is the author of Alternative Universities, Speculative Design for Innovation in Higher Education. David, thank you for being our guest today. Thank you very much, Al. Thanks for having me. For more historical thinking, go to our Facebook page, where you can comment on today's program and suggest ideas for programs to come. Please subscribe to us on Apple iTunes. And if you like what you've heard, please, please leave a review so that others can find us. Our program's editor is John Rudat. I'm your host, Al Zambone. Talk to you next week.